Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Big tech, the major social media and online communications companies like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, FANG for short, especially since Facebook and Twitter banned the then-still-sitting President Donald Trump from their services after the riot at the U.S. Capitol in January, conservatives have expressed increasing alarm at the power of big tech to remove voices not in alignment with current-year liberalism from the internet. Joining me to discuss the history of big tech censorship and the prospects for reform is James Bowers, Managing Director of Challenge Censorship. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, James, uh, James and I are former colleagues from a DC public relations firm. Uh, so Jamie, how have you been? <laughs> uh, good, Michael. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's obviously a top of mind topic for lots of people. And if it's not, it should be. So, so if you could lay out for our listeners, I mean, a lot of us, you know, especially we're familiar with the, the ban, the various bans that were handed down against uh, then president, now former president Donald Trump uh, after the Capitol riot. But sort of how did we get to that point? What's the history of these major online communications companies and trying to censor voices that aren't in alignment with, let's say, the orthodox views of the Democratic Party? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I think some of the woke capitalism that we're seeing across the board, whether it's uh, from Coca-Cola or Disney or um, Major League Baseball, some of those same things are happening uh, at the same time with a lot of these tech companies. So some of it has to do with kind of a, an overall uh, willingness to lean left um, and to appease kind of the woke mob. And then at the same time, um, the rise of social media and kind of this voice where everyone has a voice uh, has happened at the same time. And so these things kind of cross over. And one of the problems um, with big tech or that big tech had very early on was this idea of if we have a social media platform and everybody is, is allowed to post on it in real time, we don't want to be held liable um, for things that are said that are untrue. Uh, for instance, right now, if if somebody um, publishes something uh, in the New York Times that is defamatory towards somebody, it's untrue, a lie, and the New York Times is also liable uh, for that, even if they if they just repeated the lie, they didn't you know fact check it, mm. and um, the you know Facebooks of the world and the Twitters of the world said, hey, what? Our platform is a little different. Um, it's more like a, an online forum, and we can't be held liable for things that people are saying because there's no way to police all of it all the time. This is, so the, actually, this, is, this is the Section 230 thing, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, it's people throw around what Section 230 is or whether it's good or whether it's bad um, a lot, but it's it's not really explained very often, but basically 230 says um, companies like Facebook, companies like Twitter can't be held liable for the things that are said on their platform. I mean, I mean, so, so, so real kind of, again, I am not a lawyer. I do not believe Jamie is a lawyer, but let's use a real world example here. If, if, uh, if I said something, if I wrote something on Twitter defamatory about Jamie, Jamie could not sue Twitter. He could only sue me. Correct. That's exactly right. They, they would say, well, Twitter didn't, you know, isn't policing what everybody says. And it would even apply 
Um, the people who want to get rid of 230 should also understand that uh, in an extreme interpretation of that, WordPress as a company could potentially be held liable for every blog. And that yeah, is we're, housed and we're, on WordPress. WordPress provides back end software for all sorts of blogs and internet services, uh, including capitalresearch.org and influencewatch.org. Um, absolutely. And so I think what we, where we got here, people said, okay, that makes sense. They shouldn't be held liable. It would be almost impossible to police all this stuff. But as they became more popular, uh, they, they did start policing things. They would, you know, I think it probably started out more on things that were illegal activities or prostitution or sex trafficking and all sorts mm-hmm. of things that are. I mean, I mean, the original, hurt. like the original, as I understand it, the original intent of section of the Communications Decency Act uh, was there would have been like a court case that held, I think, CompuServe, I think it was CompuServe, but don't quote me on that, liable for some, because it was removing some adult material and not others, and they got sued and they got held liable, and Congress was like, no, we don't want that to, to happen. And then there were Supreme Court cases that struck down most of the, of the you know, restrictions on adult material in the CDA, but not Section 230. I think you were correct. And, and that um, there, there was a we're... there was an article by one of the authors of the Communications Decency Act a couple years ago. I want to say in the Wall Street Journal, but it might have been Fortune uh, that ex- that explained this, and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it, it's fascinating. So that all those things kind of make sense, but what I what I think has become how we got to where we are now is it became murkier as people were saying, well. Um, let's use truth as our filter. And you started seeing articles um, or even theories that were posted then get tagged um, mm-hmm. as being uh, untrue or being taken down because... And, and, we, uh, and we saw this probably most vividly last year during the initial debates over the lockdowns in response to the COVID pandemic. Yeah, and they, and they also, you know, were heavy around the the election. Um, you know, the story, the New York Post story about Hunter Biden uh, was deemed, you know, okay by the New York Post, but then not okay by Facebook. Uh, yeah, and an ostensib- um, ostensibly because it was ostensibly hacked material, even though there's not very much evidence of that. And then, of course, last week, ProPublica posted the one can only presume surreptitiously obtained by some means of an unknown party, tax returns of private individuals. And that was totally okay for ProPublica to share on Twitter and Facebook. And all these services that talking about Hunter Biden's laptop was, you know, that would that could only have been the Russians. Exactly. And much of this, I think, is centered around the 2016 election and Russian interference. And I think mm. that was utilized, that... That publicity about Russian interference, um, you know, I, I'm not going to deem how much was true or untrue about how much influence there was, but there certainly was evidence that there were fake news sites and, and all sorts yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I mean the, you had the, like, out. whatever the, you know, Jesus versus Hillary memes that, that suppose that were put out by this Russian front group, you know, that that was somehow... And then again, the left spent four years working the refs to get the, the 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 Silicon Valley people who again are 
mostly, certainly in the case of Zuckerberg, liberal, uh, you know, to, to, to intervene more aggressively than they had in the past. Yeah. And, and I think from a business standpoint, um, even if they were, were not left leaning, um, you could make the case, hey, they got bad publicity over not policing stuff that was egregiously false and, you know, foreign influence and whatnot, and um, that they tried to fix it. But the problem has been, and I think the problem that um, we're seeing, what, what frustrates uh, a lot of conservatives is that, A, the, the censorship that is happening um, is being done uh, in a non-transparent way. There's no appeals process, and they... Uh, are doing it seemingly in a biased way, um, but since they aren't being transparent, there's no way to, to know exactly how biased. Right, you can't you can't you done. can't prove you can't prove it because it's not like you can say here's this body of of cases where they let you know let liberals get away with all sorts of horribleness, but they you know kicked conservatives off the platform. Uh, exactly, and and what's then so. So a lot of that has happened. Then the, the kicking off of President Trump and, and, and some other individuals uh, who they say are now you know, such liars that we can't publish anything that they do. Um, and it is even uh, translated into elimination of competitors. So the reason I think that the, the, the evisceration and deplatforming of Parler uh, after the January 6th um, capital riots, I think that that is even more troublesome to, uh, it should be to the public because what Right, because the, the sort of the classical libertarian defense of the, of the tech companies, you know, it, expounded by Reason magazine as recently as yesterday, they had one of their, they had one of their videos taken down for, uh, I think it was for going against the lockdown uh, or vaccine passports or some COVID related thing. Uh, and of course they said, you know, Hey, they did this, but you know, they have every right to, uh, you know, their, their argument would be that, you know, you should go out and form your, uh, you know, I, you know, go out, go to Peter Thiel, you know, rich, rich right-wing guy, pro-Trump guy, and get him to fund a new whatever platform. And what you're saying, I think correctly is that what was done to parlor actually puts that response in a position where it could be taken off the table. I think you're, you're exactly right, because as a free market advocate, I, I had the same kind of conflict internally about these, this discussion. You know, hey, these are private companies. Uh, if they want to kick somebody off or they want to censor somebody, then, then that's their business. But it'd, it'd be like, you know, my, my, my analogy always was that you know, you are, you know, you go to a bar, right? And you're sitting at the bar, you're talking, you know, you're yelling, <laughs> you're, you're talking across the bar. And if you become enough of enough of an obnoxious jerk, the bartender will kick you out. I think but, that's a great analogy. But with the parlor thing, that'd be like saying, not only am I kicking you out of my bar, I'm going to use my power to prevent you from going to the bar across the street. Or starting your own bar. Or starting your, or, or starting your own bar. Or, hold, or um, holding parties in your own house. <laughs> yeah, and the, and that's where you get into an argument where they have so much power, 
and if and if you take it to the nth degree, if if the Apple App Store and you know the Google App Store or the Android Store control ninety percent of the mobile phones in the country, what do you do if they've said we don't want you? And and they don't really have to have a reason right now. Right. They can be discriminatory. And if uh, Amazon's web service, which controls 40% of the traffic on the internet, says, we're not going to host your, your website. Well, I mean, you really don't have that free, that free market argument goes away because you are basically, these companies have so much control. I mean, I mean can, at, at this, at this point, you're, you know, you're like the New York Central Railroad in 1897. And, and in fact, that, that, that brings us into the question of common care of what, what Clarence Thomas wrote about, where in, in this judicial concurrence, basically suggesting ways in law that you could do something about these, about, about the, the market power of these tech companies, the common carrier regulation. Uh, you're, you're totally right, and I'm impressed with your reference there to the uh, railroad deal. Um, that is a Jeopardy question right there, and uh, impressive. Um, yeah, and, and if you t- you know if you look at it as well, I mean, uh, how many of the listeners to this podcast uh, or of us have a Gmail account? What if uh, Google decides to start um, reading? Um, your emails and deciding whether or not they should, you should have a, a Gmail account because of the things you're saying. They obviously do read your emails to some degree because I see ads based right, on they, things they that I'm emailing based about. On it. Yeah. And so what is to stop them if this is what they're willing to do than saying, hey, we're going to take away your email address uh, because we don't think you're using email appropriately uh, based on the things that you're saying. Um, or the people that you're even uh, dealing with, and so it, it really puts it, it it puts the problem in a wholly different place because uh, a lot of people confuse free speech and um, what free speech means. Um, you know, free speech means that that you can't go to jail for the things you're saying. It doesn't mean that you don't have. Uh, consequences for the things you're saying, and it doesn't mean you can say them everywhere, uh, or that people are are forced to let you say them anywhere. Again, again, it's like my you know my my bartender can throw you out of the bar if you're being an obnoxious jerk, even right. though the policeman sitting next to you at the bar cannot take you to prison for it. <laughs> exactly, and I think people people think, well, you know, we have freedom of speech; they they can't censor me. Well. Um, I'll tell you what, I've, I've put a lot of ads uh, through the years in the New York Times, and you have to prove that what you're saying is true, or they will not put it in the New York Times, and they have every right to, to do that. Um, and because they're not, they're, they're not required by law to give a platform for your speech. You can always walk outside your house and yell at your neighbors, or as you said, go to the bar and yell. <laughs> And if they kick you out, you can stand on the sidewalk and yell. <laughs> but uh, this this idea that they they own the um, the real estate of speech, so to speak, that they can then take away your right to even have your own platform is exceedingly troublesome. Uh, and I think 
there there needs to be i think i don't know whether it's legal i don't know whether it's it's a groundswell a grassroots effort um but i think there needs to be a lot more transparency especially if these companies continue to get this 230 liability protection mm -hmm. if you're going to get this protection then i think there's some uh there's some obligation for some transparency on the censorship that you are going to do. If they say, well, we're only going to censor things that we think are extreme. Well, then you need to be very clear about how that censorship happens. And then, and then if you have, you know, so much market power in the distribution of speech that again, maybe you have an obligation, you know, like a bus company can't turn you away you know, if you have proper bus fare to 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 carry it again, especially if that that liability protection is still going to attach. Yeah, I think there there should the the there should be some trade offs for that protection. That um, if you are going to say, well, we're only going to pick and choose what we censor, um, but then don't don't hold us accountable for not censoring some things. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to be a fair application of the protection or of the of the censorship itself especially uh, especially given the size you know the the size and the degree of influence that these companies have and and speaking of degrees of influence i guess one last thing sort of before we go uh you know what what spooks me you know as as you know, we've been talking about potential regulatory approaches but what spooks me is when you're listening to pandora and on comes the Facebook ad saying, you know, we support regulation because you just know that that means that Facebook's writing it. <laughs> You're right. And, and, and I think, too, what they're seeing here is it's, it's much like any big conglomerate that says, OK, we're OK with this certain amount of regulation. Part of what goes into that calculus is they know that they are big enough that they can deal with the regulation. Right. They, they, they've survive. got they've got an army of lawyers and compliance people and right. you know, former deputy prime ministers of the United Kingdom running their government relations team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're, they're, they then know that the next parlor or the next startup is going to have that many more barriers to starting up. And they see it as, you know, even, even the tobacco companies at one point when they accepted a lot of the regulations, I think in their minds, they thought, well, that means no new tobacco startups can happen mm -hmm. because there's no way they can, can survive in this regulatory environment. So that should be make anybody who um, is a fan of the free market nervous when, when any company says bring on. The or I mean, or I mean, even, even if you're not a particular fan of the free market, if you want to see, the power of these tech conglomerates reined in, you know, how those, how the regulations are made, how the, how the sausage factory works is going to have a determinative effect on whether any regulation might actually do that. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, as a consumer, what people can do is obviously look for alternatives um, but then also, you know, voice your displeasure. I mean, these are our companies that at the end of the day have to survive based on ad revenue and, and user base and, and things like that. And their stock price is going to reflect that. 
So, you know, if you are on Facebook less, it, it's not going to kill Facebook, but it will affect them. And, but you also have to let them know why you're not on it as much. Because if they don't know that you're not on Facebook because you're frustrated with their policies, they will think it's something else that, and they're and they're going to have and they're going to have the other side in their ear. They already have the other side in their ear. Not that they're <laughs> pushing on a particularly restrictive door, but you know they already have the activist groups in their ear. So having yeah. having consumers in their ear from the other side, especially in a time when you know because of the current arrangement of federal power that you know regulation that we would like might not be on the table. Uh, you know, at least that's a, a potential countervailing force. Exactly. I think, you know, uh, if you ever worked in the, in the marketing department of a big corporation, they keep track of who's calling and why they're calling um, with frustrations. It may not seem like it, but they do. Um, and it, it's usually a lot more effective than people blathering about how they're going to boycott somebody that they really don't have any intention of boycotting. Well, Jamie, uh, thanks for joining us uh, to discuss these important and complicated issues. Uh, do you have any other projects you'd like to let our listeners know about before we break? Well, there is one thing. Um, there's a sister organization to uh, Challenge Censorship, which I encourage your listeners to check out, challengecensorship.com. Uh, it has a, a long timeline of the events leading to our current situation with censorship uh, in big tech, which I think is pretty interesting. But we have another project called ChinaOwnsUs.com, and that uh, there's some crossover to um, some of the big tech and, and Chinese influence, um, which I would uh, encourage people to check out as well. It's it's some scary stuff. All right, Jamie. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.